So some of you may have figured out by now that uh, the inspiration I got for at least the title of today's message comes to us from none other than the boss himself, Mr. Bruce Springsteen, and his 1980 hit single, Hungry Heart. Although it may interest you to know uh, that the inspiration that Bruce Springsteen got for at least the title of his song actually came from the British poet laureate Alfred Lord Tennyson who in his epic work Ulysses says that we are always roaming with hungry hearts. I wish I'd known that in 1980 because I would have told my parents that I was actually studying Tennyson instead of blasting the music of Bruce Springsteen in the car and in my dorm and in the house as well. But if you know that song, uh, and even if you're a little younger than me, you've probably heard it, uh, you know that the hungry and the roaming heart of which uh, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, himself sings, remains unsatisfied. And that brings me to today's passage from the Gospel of uh, Matthew and uh, the feeding of multitudes of hungry hearts and lives in the only miracle other than the resurrection itself to be recorded in all four New Testament Gospels, all of which have different details that they bring uh, to the story, all of which complement each other uh, to make this one very compelling story that speaks into my life and hopefully speaks into yours as well today. Uh, but before we get to the moment of truth, uh, I think it's worth noting that all of this comes on the heels of some really, really bad news, which of course was the execution of John the Baptist, the uh, forerunner, the advance man, the prophet, and the relative of Jesus himself. And Matthew tells us that uh, upon receiving this news, uh, Jesus gets into a boat and he sails across the Sea of Galilee into a deserted place by himself, or what you and I would know today as the Golan Heights, east of the Jordan River, east of the Sea of Galilee, near the fishing village of Bethsaida, which we actually get from Luke's version of the story. And while it's easy to assume that uh, Jesus wanted to be by himself in the aftermath of John's execution, historians also remind us that there's a good chance that because he assumed that the authorities were now out to get him as well due to his immense and rising popularity, that what he really needed to do was get out of the jurisdiction of King Herod, which this area also happened to be. Not that he was afraid of Herod necessarily, but because he still needed to stay on his heavenly father's clock and he didn't want his mission to be cut short. Anyway, we also know as we piece together the, the puzzle of these four Gospels that in all probability, this took place during springtime. Because Matthew says that the crowd sat down on the grass, number one. And John's version of the story points out that Passover was drawing near. Which also leads us to a presumption that this crowd of people that had followed Jesus on foot also coincidentally and just happened to be on its way to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and to make the required sacrifice as a payment for sin. And they were taking a route that would lead them on the eastern shore of the Jordan River rather than going toward the west and having to go through the spiritually corrupted land of Samaria, which of course is another sermon Anyway, when Jesus gets to the shore, 
that great crowd stops to meet him there. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion on them. Now, the word compassion in Greek has to do with feeling something literally, physically, in the pit of your stomach. In Latin, it's compassion, which is with pain. So that Jesus literally feels the hurt and feels the pain of this multitude of people in the pit of his stomach because in Mark's version of the story, he tells us that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And with that, Jesus stops his journey to that deserted place. He puts aside his feelings, his grief, his opposition, and he teaches this great crowd as they sit on the springtime grass. And that's when the feeding of the multitudes uh, take place. As the disciples of Jesus realize that evening is closing in and they tell Jesus that he needs to wrap up his sermon. And you know, if you're a preacher, you you don't want people telling you that, but they do. And they suggest that he sends the crowd away so that those who did not have any food for themselves could go into the villages and, and buy food because by this time their physical hunger in addition to the hunger of their hearts, is always kicking in. And as you heard, Jesus gives them kind of a snarky response here. And he says to them, well, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. To which they come back to him and say, uh, in effect, Rabbi, what are you talking about? We can't possibly feed all these people. All we have are these five loaves and two fish. And now Matthew doesn't give us these details, but in John's version of the story, there are two additional and very important things that happen. One is that the five loaves and two fish come from an unknown young boy who is part of the crowd. He is numbered in the multitude. And number two is the fact that uh, this boy, this young child with five loaves and two fish has been identified and brought to Jesus by none other than an apostle by the name of Andrew, the namesake of our church. And so here's old Andrew still bringing people to Jesus. He's still involving people in the mission of Jesus, which, you know, says to me that, you know, any church that bears the name of Andrew ought to be doing that. But I digress. Anyway, when Jesus hears about the five loaves and the two fish, he makes a very important statement. He says, bring them to me. And so they do. And Jesus takes the offering of that young boy. He breaks the loaves. He blesses it. And the multitudes are fed Although in Matthew's and Luke's version of the story, Jesus actually gives the food to the disciples and the disciples feed the crowd with the food that he has blessed and provided. Now, as to how this well-corroborated miracle recorded in all four Gospels is accomplished, we've talked about this before and how some people like to imagine Uh, that those who brought food with them that day, who were part of the multitudes, upon seeing the selfless generosity of that young boy with his five loaves and two fish, 
they then begin to be so moved that they give up the food that they brought for those who had none. And that's how the miracle took place. That's how the feeding of the multitudes happened as the contagious generosity of Jesus and his compassion for hungry people goes viral. Well, that's a very nice lesson, and uh, I think it's a lesson that all of us can, can certainly learn. Although I would also like to think that the God who is the creator of this entire universe can probably come up with something better than a, a large-scale potluck for an extra big congregation on a particular day. But that is also another sermon. The point is, in verse 20, that because of Jesus, everybody ate, and they were all filled. And there was more than enough left over at the end of this great miracle. Now, as to what this all means to you and how the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes actually might speak into your life today, I think of a book that I'm reading right now, uh, which is actually a book uh, about preaching, of all things. But the author of this book uh, points out that the artist Claude Monet, in the year 1890, painted 25 different versions of the haystacks in his neighbor's field. And those 25 paintings are now scattered all over the world today. But his point is that the haystacks did not change. They remained the same. But the perspective that Monet got from morning and evening, sunshine, shadows, rain, clouds, winter snow, summer heat, caused him to see things from one perspective that he didn't see from another perspective. And the uh, point of the author of this book on preaching is that you can look at a passage of scripture, you can preach on the same passage several different times from a number of different perspectives so that you don't have to preach the same sermon several different times, which is great comfort for somebody my age and been around as long as I have. But when it comes to your perspective on the feeding of the multitudes, Maybe today you hear this story and uh, you're at a place in your life where you just, you just find yourself kind of overwhelmed by the enormity of the healing, miracle-working power of Jesus in this world. And you're, you're wondering or maybe you're wrestling with how that power might be seen in your life or, or when it was evident and, and you were able to witness it for yourself. Maybe that's your perspective today. Or maybe your perspective is a little bit different. Uh, maybe you're kind of zooming down in on this whole idea that, you know, Jesus can take something uh, very meager and very small, like five loaves and two fish, and he could turn it into something greater than you ever possibly imagined when you bring what you have to him. And he shows you that there's nothing small, meager, or insignificant about you. Or maybe you find yourself gravitating toward the, the, the beginning of the passage and you just get filled up and overwhelmed and you find yourself loving the Christ who in spite of his own loss, his own opposition, puts it all aside 
to feel your hurt in the pit of his stomach because that's how great his compassion is for you. That's how much he loves you. And then there's that whole idea that God uses ordinary, unsuspecting people like you and me to be involved in his glorious, miracle-working mission to this world. People like that unsuspecting, unknown young boy with his five loaves and two fish. People like the discerning Andrew the fisherman who brings that boy to Jesus, who involves him in the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes so that everybody's hungry heart could get fed and satisfied by the reality of Jesus in their lives. Or maybe today you come from a different perspective. Maybe today you find yourself smack in the middle of the crowd. The people on foot who are on their way to Passover, to the temple in Jerusalem, to make that sacrifice as the payment for their sins. And there they stop in that deserted place and they listen to none other than Jesus Christ talk to them about the kingdom and about how that endless journey would come to a close. And they would be free from having to make their sacrifices. Their hungry hearts and lives would be fully satisfied because he is the bread of life. And in him, there would be a new springtime in their relationship with God. Those are all different perspectives. And whichever one you happen to bring with you today, any one of them can speak powerfully into your life to satisfy your own yearning, roaming, hungry heart. And so that is a perspective that we can come and, and bring with us today. And it's a perspective that I hope that is held by none other than the boss himself, Bruce Springsteen, who happened to be baptized into Christ and grew up as a Christian man. Or that we might be encouraged by uh, the different beautiful perspectives of Claude Monet that he gave to the haystacks in his neighbor's field. And with all of them, you know, I have to say to you that, you know, one of the joys of doing what I do is seeing Jesus continue to work to unleash his great power and compassion among ordinary, unsuspecting people like you and me. And it's a passage like this that causes me to stop and remember, you know, that this congregation right here, it began with an idea in somebody's head in a single moment. And then that idea was brought to Jesus and he blessed it and he multiplied it and he magnified it so that next year we're gonna celebrate the 75th anniversary of the congregation that bears the name of Andrew through which multitudes of people have been blessed by multitudes of people who have been fed by the goodness and the grace of God. This is a passage that actually causes me to think about all the food, like the literal, the physical food that has come to this house that you've brought here uh, every year and throughout the year and then makes its way out of St. Andrew. 
into the communities uh, in and around greater Washington so that hungry hearts and lives could be fed and that the giving from the people of God would remind them of Jesus who is the bread of life. I mean, I think about uh, you know, all the offerings, some big, some little, of time, of gifts, of resources, and a lot, a lot of money throughout the course of the years, many millions of dollars given freely over the course of time so that God would be praised, he would be glorified, his message would be taught, his people would be cared for with a viral compassion of Jesus who fills our hurt in the pit of his stomach. I see this stuff happening every single day for the glory of God in the church that bears the name of Andrew. But there's one other perspective. This time I got a new one. As I thought about this passage, and my perspective this time around actually comes from the city of Jerusalem itself, to which that crowd journeyed down the eastern shore of the Jordan River to celebrate the Passover, to make the required sacrifice as a payment for sins, in order to live obedient lives in response to the laws of religion. And somewhere in that city, in a room, Jesus once again took bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he declared it to be the food of forgiveness, a feast of love, a banquet of compassion for all those who would receive it in faith because he is the living bread. He is the Passover sacrifice so that in the meal that we share in this room, in this city, from this table of hospitality and grace, it turns out that the feeding of the multitudes is still underway as God satisfies our hungry hearts and our lives with his forgiveness, his sacrifice, his grace, his peace, his hope, his life in you and in me. That is his command, that is his provision as he calls us to go and you give them something to eat. Take this grace and forgiveness and this truth and this life and hope and you feed it to the world so that hungry hearts will be satisfied. That is our joy. That is our life together in the church that bears the name of St. Andrew. Never measure your problems by your own resources. Never think that your life is too small and insignificant to make a great big difference for God. Never underestimate the power of Jesus to satisfy everybody's hungry heart and to give us new lives as we take what we have received and we feed the world with good news as we come here today, even on the first Sunday in August, and we sit down and we enjoy the springtime. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.